Welcome to Ivor's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is at the intersection of Al Capone's favorite liquor and a grandmother's bootlegger history. He's Heath Schneider, grandson of Loreen Sextro, who made Templeton Rye, the legendary moonshine. Heath has dedicated himself to taking back the history of his grandmother. For everything about Loreen and her bootlegging recipe and products, go to Sextros, S-E-X-T-R-O-S, Sextros.com or IowaLegendaryRye.com, and you can follow Drink Sextro on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Heath, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ira. How did you start your journey of reclaiming your grandmother's legacy? And why, too? Yeah, it was a trip back to Iowa. We had a, a company in Iowa that was talking about making a recipe that was from Templeton, Iowa in 1932, and they mentioned my grandma, but they were spelling her name incorrectly, so I had to stop in and get that straight. <laughs> you, you knew something was amiss when they were mispronouncing her name. Yeah, exactly. But, okay, there's more to the story. You're not going to leave us at that point. So how did you get down this road of getting involved with moonshine, now legal, of course, and your mother's involvement in coming up with the recipe and everything like that? Well, you know, when I visited the factory, I was very intrigued. We always knew that Grandma had made whiskey during Prohibition. She left a letter behind saying so much. But when we found a fifth-generation bootlegger suggesting that his family had contacted my grandmother in her late years and claiming that they had her recipe, I had just had to visit and upon that visit, I found the product to be exceptional. I mean, at the time, I wasn't a drinker, so for me to have any drink was a bit of a stretch. But uh, it was something I enjoyed, something I obviously had a personal tie to. And I just fell in love with the idea of getting into the liquor business and uh, telling my grandmother's story. How complicated was your grandmother's story? And how did you do your research to find out the story? Well, she left a letter behind, you know, saying that she made Templeton rye during Prohibition as a way to feed the family. So, you know, that alone was very interesting to me. But researching it with Whiskey Rich, who was the one telling the story of meeting my grandmother, his family actually sought out my grandmother because she was one of what we think was 10 families that made Templeton rye. And since he's saying that he's got the only surviving recipe, I just couldn't resist going and, you know, A, trying it, and then B, validating the fact that it really is what my grandmother made because she left a letter behind, you know, listing the ingredients, drawing the still, and just laughing about how they used to feed it to the pigs, and the pigs would just, you know, be silly. (laughs) Yes, having a happy time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Good way to dispose of mash. During that period of time, clearly there was demand for whiskey and all kinds of spirits because of prohibition. How did your grandmother get her product to market? And the market being, I assume, among other places, Chicago, where Al Capone lived. Well, there was a gentleman named Joe Earlbeck who ran the whole show and and segued to the Des Moines outfit, which segued to this Chicago outfit. And my grandmother lived in a a German Catholic town during Prohibition. And the German Catholics were notorious for being fiercely independent and doing what they wanted to, regardless of what federal law mandated. So you had yourself a war between what was called at that time the wets and the dries. You had counties that were dry that insisted that, you know, liquor and alcohol was 
the work of the devil. And you had the Catholics, and in this case, even the priest in Templeton, Iowa, making whiskey in the basement of the church. So it's just two opposing views and, you know, personalities and counties kind of going against each other, even if they were butted up beside each other. Well, did one county rat on another? So, would, so for example, did the dry county rat on the wet county? Absolutely, yeah. So Carroll County was notoriously wet. They would uh, convene juries, even if they had caught the people with barrels, with whiskey, with all of the pieces and parts, Carroll County juries would not convict. So they would raid from Audubon County or from an adjacent county because Carroll County would just not convict. So it was a, a real interesting time in American history in that you had religious factions. You know, you had the Catholics versus the Protestants to a certain extent. And then you also had immigrants versus people who'd been in the United States for a long time. So it, it was a, a, a very trying time in the Midwest, and it played down the lines of the liquor business. And you had gangsters versus the government as well. You did, yeah. Even the sheriff of Carroll County in the 30s would tilt his hat to the right when the feds were in town to notify all the people in Carroll County of the fact that they were present. And it it, it got pretty... It got pretty exciting. They actually threatened to hang a priest in Audubon for teaching religion in German during that time. So it it was a, a trying time. Huh. I want to talk a little bit more about Whiskey Rich in a moment, but when you started your research, you relied, as you mentioned earlier, some of it on Whiskey Rich, but did you go to the local libraries in that area to do more research, or how did you end up researching more of your grandmother's legacy? Well, the story of Templeton Rye has been told for years. It's a, it's an interesting story because, number one, it's true, and number two, it comes right out of where I'm from. You know, I was born and raised in Crawford County. My whole family's from Carroll County. Those counties sit side by side. So it's kind of like researching one's own history prior to being around. So, you know, that was a natural interest for me. And then going on YouTube and watching PBS specials about Templeton Rye and and knowing that my grandmother played a part in that, it's just, it's very interesting. And then reading books, there's been a book that was written called Gentleman Bootlegger that gets into a lot of the details of Templeton Rye. And the story's just a, a, a piece of American history. So all of that together, I've probably put thousands of hours into researching that time and that place. And, you know, keeping in mind that town's only 350 people today. It was only 350 people back then yet they hung a whiskey barrel in the garland during Christmas for prohibition. I mean, that's just such a <laughs> bold thing to do, no matter who you are at what exactly. time, you know? <laughs> Did you discover any oral histories of either your grandmother or any of your grandmother's contemporaries? Oh, yeah. Again, if you go to YouTube, you can find hundreds of people claiming uh, provenance to whether it be Al Capone or the priest, or having an aunt or an uncle that had some part in it. I mean, the whole town was in on it, and they really weren't going to be told not to do that. So I think my grandmother was but one of many that took it upon themselves to do what they were going to do to feed their kids. Well, when I'm referring to oral history, were there any recordings made by your grandmother where she sat down for an interview or she made a speech, anything like that? It's funny you should say that. My Aunt Becky 
just told me this weekend that she has a, uh, a, a video of talking to my grandmother about how she met my grandfather, how she bootlegged back then. And we're, we're putting all that video together. We can't wait to share it with the public because at that time she's in her nineties. And even then she'd look over her shoulder before she'd tell stories because (laughs) she'd been kind of indoctrinated into the fact that that was wrong. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that'd be great. It'd be good on the website. People get a a sense of what she was like, even in her nineties. We're going to do that for sure, and I can't wait to share it because you can see the bootlegger in her, even though she did it in her, you know, early twenties. You can still see it in her nineties that it was something she was, she was proud of, but she, you know, also realized it was it was something she could get in trouble for if she were caught. I assume the idea was that she looked at it as a way of providing for the family. That's it. Yeah, my my grandmother, by no standard, was a gangster. In fact, she is extremely religious. She was an integral part of the community. She was a midwife for many years, and she did it out of necessity. You know, they're farmers during the Depression. You can't sell pigs, cattle, eggs. Therefore, you sell what you can sell, and that was whiskey. The the German Catholics in Templeton, Iowa, became world famous for taking a bread baker's approach to making whiskey, and that approach was so exceptional and so different that it became to the point where it supported the whole community. While many communities were failing, Templeton, Iowa, the Templeton, Iowa Bank did very well. What do you mean by bread baker's approach? Well, we the recipe for Templeton rye is, is famously known as water, sugar, rye, and yeast. And the exception in there is sugar. Almost all liquors in the world today, especially whiskeys, cannot have sugar in the mash bill. That's an old pre-prohibition, during prohibition recipe style. But grandma also used bread baker's yeast. A lot of people don't realize that yeast is the X factor in making liquor because the yeast will kick out alcohol and it's the process of yeast eating sugar to get to alcohol. So that yeast plays a very important part. And in Templeton Rye, they would take bread baker's yeast and sugar to get the flavor profile they were seeking. Last but not yeast, in other words. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How did, I mentioned in my opening about, it was Al Capone's favorite liquor. How did, how were you able to discover that? Or is that part of, that's just out there anyway, and then you just came upon it? Or were you digging a little bit deeper to find this out? Uh, It's a well-known fact. Uh, Al Capone was known to like Templeton Rye. He would send his group down to Iowa to get Templeton Rye, and his quote was, it was the good stuff. They like to call it the good stuff. Did he get it just for himself, or was he selling it up there? Strangely, Al Capone wasn't a big drinker, according to history, but he did find Templeton Rye to be exceptional, and what's said to be the fact on that is that he liked to give it as a gift to his friends and refer to it as the good stuff. Ah, okay. But was he also selling it too, or is it just for the gifts to friends, that type of thing? Oh, no, he was selling it. Okay. My grandmother in her letter said that they were making 300 gallons a day at the farm, and she would house the bootlegger in her home in the attic six days out of the week. He'd go home for church on Sundays, and the fact in her letter was that they were paid 75 cents a gallon for the use of the farm. Interesting operation. The part that I find fascinating is not so much the use of trucks to get this 
great stuff to Chicago and other places, but they would use the train as well. But how did they manage that if it was illegal? Oh, they'd stop the train. You know, they'd unload the train and they'd reload the train. The train actually passes within a mile of my great-grandfather's farm and where my grandfather farmed. And stopping the trains was not as unusual as you would think for transportation of liquor products. It was it was pretty standard, in fact. When you say stopping the train, are you talking about law enforcement authorities stopping the train or, or the bootleggers stopping the train? The yeah, load? bootleggers stopping the train. Okay. so and they're Using the empty cars as transportation to get product to those four points I described. So there was an understanding between the bootleggers and, let's say, the engineer. Exactly. The, okay. Now, yeah. now I get it. I couldn't figure out how they were able to do that, at least coming from the uh, official station, but they stopped along the way and, and loaded it up onto empty cars. Exactly. Oh, okay. In it, the dark of night. Of course, uh, yes. You couldn't do it in yeah. the daytime. Yeah. No, that makes yeah, sense. No, it's a funny story. My grandfather one time described hauling a horse and cart full of barrels being warned halfway there and having to go back to the family farm and bury those barrels. I actually spent an entire summer two years ago with cadaver dogs searching for those barrels, actually trying to find those buried barrels from that time and place. We actually found my grandmother still in that search, but we never actually found those barrels. Well, I think you're using the wrong kind of dogs. Not you don't want cadaver dogs. You want <laughs> you want barrel dogs. Everybody knows well, that. We 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 went so far as to treat teach cadaver dogs what whiskey smells like. <laughs> it took us like two or three weeks to get the dogs to to, to identify. Right. But that's just about as crazy as I get. <laughs> had to have those barrels. I think you need those little metal detector things that can pick up the the metal around the barrel. You know, Yo, we had that too. We had yeah. a college campus out there. I mean, we, we went deep into trying to find these barrels. It was something my grandfather suggested on his deathbed that he wanted my Aunt Shirley, his oldest daughter, to go out and dig those barrels up. Do you think they're still out there even though you didn't find them? You know, that's a good question, Ira, because we sat and talked about that for so long and everybody wanted to find them. And, you know, we found pieces and parts. We found what we thought were hoops you know, to the barrels, but a hundred years underground, even with it being oak is a long time for wood to, to hold on, especially with the weather they get in Iowa. So we had the dogs key on a number of areas and it seemed that they were keying on the liquid more than the barrels. And we think, unfortunately, it's been lost to the ground. Oh, too bad. Yeah. Too bad. I mentioned before we come back to this gentleman, and now is the time. So tell us a little bit about Whiskey Rich. Well, Whiskey Rich is a fifth-generation bootlegger. His family sought out my grandmother through, you know, just people knowing people and went to my grandmother to see what was different about the way they were doing things versus the way she did things. And she corrected everything they were doing wrong so that they could get to the original recipe. And Whiskey Rich has a certain perspective, I would assume, coming from that kind of a family background. Oh, yeah. I mean, Whiskey Rich uses the word allegedly quite often, first of all, because, you know, I mean, even though people still bootleg liquor in the Midwest and in Iowa, and for that matter, in Carroll County, his decision flowchart was going from illegal to legal on a ultimatum from his girlfriend, Lisa, pretty much said, make it legally or don't come home. So 
that's where Iowa legendary rye was started is whiskey rich having to go legit in order to keep his family life intact. Yeah, which you decided to do, obviously. So, Well, and thank God, because otherwise it'd still be underground and, and the only surviving recipe for that time and that place would be gone. Does Whiskey Rich look behind his back occasionally like your grandmother did? <laughs> he at sure age, does. At age 90, she did that, but he may do it until he's 90, too. <laughs> he sure does. He's a character. You know, Whiskey Rich still comes around the distillery. He's retired now, but he still comes around the distillery to make sure they're doing things properly and to tell a few tall tales. He's a, he's, he's, he's a character and someone that is a product of multiple generations of making products illegally. And I, I'm so thankful that it came full circle and is legal because he, he saved what I believe to be a, a piece of American history. Does he have successors as well who can take up the legal aspect of it or is he the end of the line from that part of the family Uh, he's got sons and daughters that aren't involved in the business but uh, we've got a cousin of lisa's that is a master distiller now he's actually put in over ten thousand hours of fermenting and cooking under whiskey rich's tutelage so max max poland is our current master distiller and he works it every day. I think he's in his early 30s now, and we're super excited to have him as the next generation to continue the legacy. In that kind of industry or business, it seems that it is generational, similar to farmers. You don't always get that with different kinds of trades or businesses, but when it comes to either wine or liquor, that there seems to be a generational connection. So father to son to grandson to great-grandson. It seems that way. Am I close to that? It's very true in the scotch business, in the vodka business, in the wine business. It's not so true in the whiskey business, and one would not figure that out if you didn't bury your head in it for five years. But the typical whiskey business is to source a whiskey from a huge distillery, you know, typically a multi-billion dollar operation because it's so much more cost effective to buy your product from someone and then tell a story, which most consumers don't realize is 90% of the whiskey you buy is made in six distilleries, six. And then the other 10% is made in a craft fashion but it's so hard for a craft brand to get off the ground and to maintain itself because of the waiting time, you know, the barrel aging time, and then just the scale of the investment required to market liquor in the United States. So it's, it's a tough business. Uh, one I got into kind of thinking, oh, it'd be fun to make something my grandmother made. In retrospect, it's a lot of work. It'd be much easier to source like 90% of the people do. But the trick for me is that's not what my grandmother made. So I certainly can't just tell a story and, you know, get away with it. So we've stayed to the purest side of it in that we make things exactly the way it was made in 1932, all the way from the mash bill to the fermentation style to even having the, the stills made in a specific fashion that are identical to that time and place. Although now it's legal 
in terms of your use of the still. Is the hard part for you not so much the construction of the still? I understand the costs involved in not just processing it, but marketing it as well. But how hard is it to get barrels that will work for you in terms of storing the product? Well, that's where having somebody like Whiskey Rich involved is so valuable because they've put in the time to understand what barrel is best, what yeast is best, what temperature for fermenting is best, what still design is best. All those things are things you have to typically learn the hard way. Having a guy who comes from a, you know, five generations of making liquor has a certain value. In addition to that, you know, Whiskey Rich is passionate about making what he likes to call the best whiskey in the world. And so he's very attentive to the details and he's passed that attention to detail to Max. Does he stay close to where it's made or does he travel around to let people know the story of it and of your grandmother? Uh, Whiskey Rich lives in Carroll. He stops in the distillery every day on a volunteer basis. And he's just passionate about it. He's passionate about it like I'm passionate about it in that we have a lot of respect for the people of that time in history. And we just think that it's important that we take back this piece of American history because it's so not the way it's being done right now. Right now, it's all marketing and it's all buy it from somebody and tell a good story. We actually think we're bound by history to keep this recipe alive. Again, Ira, we're the only distillery that actually makes what was made back then. We have the surviving recipe for one of the best times in in Iowa history. So we, we are very passionate about keeping it real. What do you do with your employees? Do you give them a sense of the history or because they're from that area, they know the history? Oh, I think Whiskey Rich instills the history into everybody at the factory. I don't live there. I live in Las Vegas. So I just visit and promote the company because it's my grandma's recipe, offer financing and you know financial backing to the company because of it being part of my history. So it's a passion project for me. It's certainly not a for-profit thing for me at this point. But in terms of the employees working there, is there a set story that they, so they understand the importance of why this is being made and who's making it? Or do they already know that from being in the area? They know that from being in the area. Templeton Rye is famous in Carroll County. Templeton Rye that being the recipe from 1932, not the brand most people know. So it's a, it's a point of pride. You know, people come into the factory every day to tell their story of their uncle or their aunt or their brother or you know, that was involved in it in some way. And everybody in Carroll County knows that Iowa Legendary Rye is the real recipe from that time and place. Have you thought about having it? Maybe you do have it because I haven't been there, but eventually I will come and take a tour. But is there a museum part to the factory so that people get the sense of the history? There is. In fact, they do tours. They arrange tours for groups. They have my grandmother's original still that we dug up two years ago with those dogs. We actually found it. in. Oh, okay. So you found that. You just didn't find the barrels. Exactly. And then Rich put it back together with his experience of how that would have looked because obviously it's a little rusted. So, you know, we've got a really interesting tour 
that people can stop by. They also can do samples to see what that tasted like at that time. It's a fun little tour and, and highly encouraged to stop by. It's on Main Street in Carroll, Iowa, so it's not hard to find. Yeah, I don't think there's anything hard to find in that town. Because <laughs> right. You said exactly. it's not that big, so it exactly. works out very well. I would imagine if you stay at a local hotel or motel or bed and breakfast, you probably have a little bit of that to drink by your bedside provided by the house. Yeah, exactly. Let's certainly hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so what are your plans for the future other than continuing to talk about your passion for your grandmother's life? Obviously, the recipe that everybody put together for this. Are you planning anything to expand the operation? Well, we're having wild success in Las Vegas. A lot of the casinos have been buying barrels to share with their guests. And some of the finer restaurants in Las Vegas have their own barrel picks. So Vegas has been a fantastic stop for us. They're constantly expanding the brand in Iowa and Nebraska, being done very well in Missouri. So, you know, we're taking the country over state by state. We just ran a pallet of product down into Florida. Uh, We just put a, a barrel down in a very famous golf course down in Georgia. So you know, it's it's one spot at a time. It's what I'd call guerrilla warfare because, you know, we're not a multi-billion dollar distillery. We're just a fantastic recipe. So our, our goal is putting liquor on lips and letting people experience the difference and hope that it catches on at some point in time. In other words, roll out the barrel. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Not everybody laughs at my corny jokes, but I appreciate it. Uh, he, it kind of hits home with me because we used to have family reunions and roll out the barrel. Was requirement. <laughs> Speaking of barrels, and before I let you go, what happens to the barrel? So we do send out the barrels with people who want the barrels as a keepsake, but we're required to put the barrel into bottles in order to sell it to the public, you can't sell it in a larger amount than a 1.75 liter bottle. So the factory is required by law to put it in bottles. And then the end consumer can choose to take the barrel as a keepsake. Uh, we've been known to cut the barrel up into wood staves with little shot glass holes in it so that they can use it as part of their serving. But we reuse the barrels five times because that's the way they did it during prohibition is you'd use the new barrel. That's our black label. And then we'd use the barrel four more times for red label. And then we've discussed sending the barrels down to Jalisco to put tequila in them because we did an experimental shipment of six barrels down to Jalisco. And it it came out to be a fantastic research and development project, but we're not far enough down the road now to decide where we, what we want to do with those barrels once we're done with them. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Heath Schneider. He's grandson of Laureen Sextro, who made Templeton Rye, the legendary moonshine. Heath has dedicated himself to taking back the history of his grandmother. And for everything about Laureen and her bootlegging recipe and products, go to Sextros, S-E-X-T-R-O-S, Sextros.com or IowaLegendaryRye.com. And you can follow them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Heath, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira. Appreciate you taking the time. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ibra's Everything Bagel.